Um, you know, so someone can be have a lot of logos, would be very clear, rational, but they can be quite boring and not very effective, right? Uh, and you see this with you know in the political sphere in modern politics. If you have a candidate who is all logos, he's not going to win. Hello, I'm Shane Saxon, and this is my guest, Mitchell Holly. And we're back for our next episode in our little mini-series we're doing on the liberal arts. And today we're talking about rhetoric. And, you know, we've just fallen into this pattern of, of using anecdotes from our friendship to help illustrate these concepts. And rhetoric really makes me think of a significant part of your life. I, I actually really think that if I was to put my finger on the one piece of the trivium that you are the most skilled in, it is rhetoric. And I, I know this for a fact because there was a period after college where you were trying to make a living. Yeah. You were engaged. Yeah. Um, you didn't necessarily have any experience in anything. No. <laughs> That's or right. really any credentials at all. Right. <laughs> and you got all these jobs somehow. Yeah. <laughs> in this period of, of six months, eight months to fund, you know, your wedding and all these different yeah. things. At one point, I remember meeting up for breakfast. And you were passionately defending or attacking the farm bill of right. 2011. I don't remember, or 2014, <laughs> I don't remember. Um, there was a point where you were both human resources and marketing in the same company. And, and my thought at that time was only a master of rhetoric in the interview process could get where Mitchell is getting today. Yeah. <laughs> so I really, this is just us trying to find your wisdom. Well, uh, first of all, I'm going to say that that's too kind of you. And I really mean it's too kind of you. Because <laughs> uh, in reality, um, uh, you know, the, the rhetoric has been just such a big part of education in general. Um, and so uh, what, what's funny is that we, we tend to like compartmentalize rhetoric into, you know, he's a smooth talker. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and uh, you know, there may be some truth to that if, if it's predicated of myself. But, um, but uh, it, it, it's, there's a lot more to rhetoric sure. than, uh, than uh, you know, uh, getting into places, <laughs> getting jobs out after college. Although, I mean, you know, they're you know, hey, selling your, you know. Everyone needs to get a job after college. Everyone needs to get a job after college, and that can be a hard time. <laughs> so, Mitch, what is rhetoric? Rhetoric is the art of effective communication. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a growth in the acquisition of those skills necessary to persuade. Mm. Uh, and so I think it's helpful when you think about rhetoric to think about those who did it best. And obviously, there's an immeasurable number of examples from classical history. Right. You know, you think about the great orators of classical Athens, like Demosthenes, who brought legislation after legislation against uh, those who were, you know, political enemies or those who had broken the laws, or even in some cases, those who had not broken the actual laws, but the spirit of the law, mm. right? And right. so those are always some interesting ones. There's one legislation, not from Demosthenes, but from another um, orator, who brings uh, an accusation against someone who had abandoned his post mm. during a time of war? Right. Now, there's no specific law in Athens at the time uh, for you know not abandoning your post, but uh, the orator will make the argument, kind of an emotional argument, that by 
that by abandoning his post, what he actually did is he abandoned the city. Mm. And, uh, and so he's tugging on the heartstrings right. of those who are in his audience. And he's saying, yes, we do feel abandoned. Yeah, and yeah. so maybe he should be punished uh, to the fullest extent of the law, even though he hasn't technically broken the law, but he's broken the spirit of the law. Now, that particular oration wasn't very successful. Um, but another great example is, um, and again, we could, I mean, we could spend the rest of the time just talking about great classic examples, but another example would be Plutarch, mm-hmm. who's standing in Rome and giving a, a, an oration, um, trying to make a point about um, Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at the time, uh, Alexander the Great, there was a great dialogue happening. Was he a great person? Was he a virtuous leader? Or was he merely just a product of fortune? Right. Did fortune just kind of smile on him? Yeah. And uh, that would be an interesting uh, kind of careful ground you have to kind of navigate, right? And Plutarch stands before Rome, and he's able to give this beautiful kind of weaving argument about how fortune was not the primary thing that made Alexander great. Actually, mm-hmm. it was his virtue, you know. And so, but he starts off very carefully, right? He says that, um, you know, the, there are those that would say <laughs> right, right, <laughs> that right. Alexander the Great was merely a, a product of fortune, but surely Alexander would not agree. And then he quotes uh, fictitious, something that Alexander never said. But if Alexander were asked, are you just a product of fortune? Plutarch would say, um, uh, Plutarch claims that Alexander would say something like, well, no, I'm not a product of, of fortune. King Darius, the king of the Persians, mm-hmm. he's a product of fortune because he didn't do anything to get right. his empire, right? But I, I mean, look at my leg. I, I've been wounded here. My shoulder was popped out of joint, you know? Everything that I got was a, a product of of courage, temperance, wisdom, justice. Um, so it's an, interest, it's an interesting example of how... Um, how a guy like Plutarch, who's a, a Greek, who's talking for a Roman audience, has to kind of uh, give them a leave them with a favorable favorable impression of someone who they, who has a bit of a checkered past. I mean, Alexander the Great conquered empires and and you know slayed kings. Uh, so he's not. We don't necessarily think of him as a virtuous first person, mm-hmm. a powerful person, but not a virtuous person. So Plutarch had an interesting, uh, but also challenging. Uh, you know, uh, mission in front of him. Right. Um, but it speaks to the importance and the ability um, of being able to uh, make a, a, a logical, effective argument. I agree with you that uh, looking back on classical history and is one of the best ways to think about what rhetoric is because of the illustrations we find there, two come to mind to me. One would be Cicero. Cicero, the only reason we remember him really is because of his rhetorical ability. When you start to read Cicero, especially in English translation, all of his ideas are reproduced and imitations of what came before him. Mm -hmm. But what he did better than anyone else, and especially those who are, are Latin experts, will tell us is that he was able to manipulate language and to use in such a way that he took the ideas of old and he formed them and weaponized them mm-hmm. to his own end. And that's why all, all of the Roman important people wanted him on their side. The other one that comes to mind is Shakespeare kind of immortalizes the importance of rhetoric in his play, Julius Caesar. And there's this just amazing speech uh, it, that uh, Mark Antony gives where he keeps saying this line, but Brutus is an honorable man. Right. And, and yeah. this is the rhetorical <laughs> play on that line. And uh, yeah, if, if you go on YouTube, look at Damian Lewis doing this speech and the way he says Brutus is an honorable man. It's amazing. And, and it just speaks to the power of rhetoric. That's what 
Shakespeare was getting at. And, oh. Well, that also brings up the fact that rhetoric is more than just words. Mm. You know, and, and when it comes to effective persuasion, there's logos, right? There's there's the words that you say. Right. And but then there's also also pathos mm-hmm. or some, you know pathos pathos right but what which is the emotion that you're mm-hmm. drumming up that you're using uh to persuade um but then there's also ethos right they there you have embodied a certain disposition that will make you trustworthy or not mm-hmm. right um you know so someone can be have a lot of logos would be very clear rational but they can be quite boring and not very effective <laughs> Right. right. Uh, and you see this with, you know, in the political sphere, in modern politics. If you have a candidate who is all logos, he's not going to win. Right, right. <laughs> but if you have a if you have a candidate who is zero logos, completely irrational, but is very high in pathos, there's a high likelihood that yeah. it will be successful. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, again, where do we see rhetoric come up in the curriculum? As we've talked about in every episode of the series, the liberal arts are the backbone to curriculum. And so where does rhetoric pop up? Well, it, it pops up in a number of ways. And we kind of alluded to this in, in the last ep- episode about um, our literature programs, our literature guides specifically, where uh, in our literature guides, they're divided up into the three stages, right? Grammar, logic, rhetoric. And in the first stage, they're acquiring definitions of words and they're reviewing what things mean. And then in the logic stage, they're beginning to, to you know make distinctions about characters and what they did. Mm. And then finally is the, you know, the rhetoric stage of our literature guide where now you're going to talk about using effective communication uh, and the art of communication. Um, um, you know, certain ideas that you might have have developed or, or if you're going to try to make a persuasive argument about why Elizabeth Bennett is the ideal, you know, uh, you know, uh, female character in, in the novel, you know, you need to make a persuasive argument of that. Um, you know, uh, we also just on a very kind of subject level, we also do study Aristotle's rhetoric where we're looking at um, um, mainly that book that he wrote, Rhetoric, uh, where he's going to talk about the ways that you can be persuasive. And we're going to mm-hmm. break down the, the the tools of persuasion into discrete pieces and we're going to practice those. Right. right. And then the biggest, and this is an area I know you've done a lot of work with and I think you've taught as well, is our classical um, com- um, composition program, right. which is which is built on the sort of um, medieval classical approach that was grounded in uh, the Greeks and the Romans uh, to teaching persuasive oratory. Right. Right. The the classical composition curriculum, I I find constantly to have my uh, find myself explaining to people that it is a a process of learning how to write, but the, the act of learning how to write is the act of learning how to think, you know, logic, but then learning how to put those those clear distinctions in writing and learning how to expand your ability to express. And that ultimately is um, what you're doing in rhetoric is if you're going to persuade someone, you've got to learn the various different ways that you can express similar concepts and the, the most effective way that you can express them. And that's why in the classical composition curriculum, for instance, they are doing drills like you would do drills on a basketball court or something like that, that force a student to expand their ability to think of new words, new expressions. And then they're also imitating people who have, who've written speeches before written oratories against 
you know, yeah. criminals in common topic mm -hmm. or, or the refuting or confirming stories and refutation and confirmation. And they're repeating ones that have already been done so that they can learn strategies, just like you would learn a strategy in a sports game, um, for the best way to accomplish your goal. And that is what rhetoric is, right? It's, it's learning these strategies of effective communication and gaining the skill to, to, to create new ways. And that also, yeah, that's exactly right. And it also um, highlights in the classical tradition the importance of mimesis mm. when it comes to to um, the tr training and rhetoric. So mimesis is imitation, but not cold, just sort of um, this sort of artificial repetition. It, it's rather, you know, you follow a model. And then you have have embodied that model to such a, a degree, you are so proficient at at, at reproducing that that skill uh, of rhetoric um, that now you can reproduce that skill with infinite variety. Mm. You know, and and this is why um, you know young students of of rhetoric and of um, those who have read um, Aristotle's Poesis are, um, are are look are mainly looking at and analyzing. Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, mm. the writings of Homer, and it was uh, it was Aristotle who said that um, Homer, more than any other poet, taught all the other poets how best to tell lies. <laughs> and uh, the 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 point there is that you know by by looking at the skills of Homer, and by reproducing those skills, and then kind of learning those skills, and then being able to reproduce those skills with any topic, um, is is the best training. In, in rhetoric. Right. And that's why we look in classical composition. We look at a model. We imitate that model. We learn how to articulate that model with, with other examples. And then we practice that that skill with, you know, like I said, infinite variety. So you can right. so ideally that the, the best orator would be able to go from topic to topic to topic or in the case of our illustration earlier, from job interview to job interview, <laughs> and uh, be able to be persuasive um, by because he's acquired the tools of persuasion. All right. So let me ask you this: You're you're a student of ancient philosophy, and in Gorgias, one of the Platonic dialogues, um, Socratic dialogues, I apologize. Um, Socrates is talking with this sophist. Gorgias, and he challenges him, and he says that that rhetoric is an empty skill. And he and the basic point of the dialogue is to say that Socrates' position of trying to get to the truth is better than someone who's just trying to convince someone else of something. How does that very specific attack against the idea of rhetoric fit with our understanding of rhetoric in the curriculum today? Yeah, Plato is trying to uh, bring up a legitimate issue like what would happen if you have an immoral person who's really good at rhetoric? Right, right. <laughs> you know, who's what, perhaps trying to find employment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, in other words, uh, rhetoric can go dark, mm, right? Just, right. <laughs> just like logic can go dark, right? Um, you know, rhetoric can do go dark as well when it's in the hands of, of people who are not virtuous. Mm. And that's where, you know, in the, in the ancient world, um, the sophist tradition started uh, as as a kind of a somewhat legitimate enterprise for teaching the children of rich elites, rich elite children, how to be effective orders in in the legal sphere. And um, but what that eventually culminated in were these these children of rich aristocrats 
who were very persuasive, but yet who didn't have the knowledge to be good politicians. Mm. They didn't know how to how to legislate well in a community. They didn't know how they didn't know what the good was. Mm. And so that's why rhetoric, if 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 that's the only skill you learn, um, that will devolve into sort of a manipulation mm. where you're you're just moving around manipulating people towards your own ends, and those ends could be bad or they could be good. But Plato reminds us that um, the it kind of situates uh, where we should think about rhetoric. It is an important skill, yes, and Plato's going to acknowledge that in the later in his yeah he writes a dialogue to the sophist right later on. So he's going to remind us of the value of of um, of rhetoric. But he's going to give us a caution. Those who would study rhetoric must also be virtuous. They mm-hmm. must also be a philosopher yeah. and in Plato's case. Yeah, it reminds me. I, when I was reading Gorgias, it struck me that you have Socrates saying something very similar to what Plato or to what the Apostle Paul says in that I don't come to you with vain words and clever speeches. I come to you with the truth. Right. <laughs> and that in and of itself is a clever rhetorical ploy. But there's also a subtle critique of those who believe that the greatest use of, of words is to is to manipulate, to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the use of force through through words. That really, what the Apostle Paul is getting at is that is that love is the greatest uh, use of our words, the edification of others, um, and not force. And I've always found that really compelling. That that illustration, you know, helpfully gets at the point. You know, because Socrates and, and Paul, they're using rhetoric. That's a rhetorical ploy, right, right? right? To to flip. You're coming at with me with mere words, but I'm coming at you with the truth, as <laughs> if words and truth are kind of against one right. another. So he's, he's they're creating a duality. You come with words, which is not as good as me coming with truth. Right. And in Paul's case, love. Um, and in reality, that itself is a is a rhetorical ploy. So you know, th- that sort of plug against rhetoric right. is actually an illustration of proper rhetoric being done. By a virtuous person, right. and it does place rhetoric in its in its context, right? It's skillful communication, hopefully a skill oriented towards the good. And, and it's what we've said from the beginning: the liberal arts. The, the problem with modern educational movements is that we have fragmented the person. Everything is so fragmented, and what we're trying to get back to as best we can in our movement is is an education for the whole person. And what that requires is intent thought on what is the curriculum? Well, it's based on liberal arts. How are we shaping children with liberal arts? We're shaping them and pointing them towards a virtue mm-hmm. and towards the fear of the Lord. And all of these pieces have to go together. And if you lose one of them, yeah. you lose the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's important to hold these things in tension. Mm. You know, a training in the trivium should not be reduced to just skills training. Right. Where we, uh, you know, to, to do that would be to fall victim to the sort of sophist idea of what rhetoric is, merely being persuasive. Um, our goal is that we would be persuasive so that we can be instruments of the good. Uh, and, and that kind of makes me think, too, as we wrap up talking about the trivium, grammar, logic, rhetoric, that these are not things that you learn in, in school and then it's done this is a part of the reason why we we don't fully embrace just a merely developmental picture of the trivium, mm-hmm. that it goes beyond that. Because I think once you realize that the trivium as language arts that, that provide us the tools that contribute to knowledge, that this is the good life, is that to, to have these, these skills contributes to the good life. And, and ultimately, through our lives, one of the 
the pleasures of our friendship has been reading good books together, understanding them, making fine distinctions, and then arguing with each other about them yeah. persuasively <laughs> and unpersuasively. And and once you get to higher levels of education, the master's degrees that we've pursued and, and other uh, places where we've learned, that's the process. You read a great book, you make fine distinctions, and then you argue. Yeah, <laughs> And those are the tools that we're giving to children from their earliest ages in classical education. Yeah, that's the Socratic model, right? The, you know, you're, you bring up an idea, you make distinctions, and then you try to persuade the, the, someone to believe, you know, what you believe. And it's in that dialectic, that dialogue, that pull and tug between uh, two hopefully virtuous people who are both united in their efforts towards true and good and beautiful things. Um, it's in that dialogue where there's a sharpening that takes place. Mm. And so rhetoric does cultivate not only the self, it's not only a skill um, that you're learning, but it, it does cultivate the mind as well. Mm. Because in that in that sort of you're trying to persuade me of, of a point and I'm trying to persuade you of a point, then my thinking becomes challenged and then refined and your thinking becomes challenged and refined. And so there's, a, there's an upward trajectory of that sort of dialectic. Um, that is uh, perfectly illustrated with the dialogues uh, of, of classic Greece. Yeah. Well, that is our end of the section on the trivium. We've talked about grammar. We've talked about logic. We've talked about rhetoric. Next, we're going to enter into the quadrivium. And so on our next episode, uh, we will talk about that together. 